Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Thank you, everyone, for a wonderful experience in worshiping in music today. It's great to be here. I'm not John Middendorf, <laughs> but I'm responsible for him, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's a, a real privilege today to fill this pulpit. Some of you know that I've said several years, I hope I grow up to be the kind of preacher John is. I, uh, I deeply admire his insight into the Word. I think most of all, I admire his love for this local church. It's remarkable to know how deeply he loves you. And we get to hear it, we get to see it up close and personal. And so I want to say to you, thank you for uh, loving your pastor and his family and for the many, many ways that you've been so kind and gracious to them and for the welcome you've given to Susan and me since we have uh, arrived in Oklahoma City. Well, let me tell you a little bit about that story. Early in 2022, Susan and I began to make our plans to move to Oklahoma City. We'd lived in the Kansas City area for 32 years. We've been married 58 years uh, this past year, 59 years now, but at the time, 58 years, and uh, we spent 32 of those years. Yeah, well, she's finally got me whipped into shape. So those, uh, those 32 years, we put down roots in the Kansas City area. We loved the area. Uh, we even enjoyed the sports teams. We were there when the Royals won the pennant. We were there when the Chiefs won for the third time. Uh, just lots of things about it we love. We love the people. We were still involved in the local church that I pastored for the first 10 years we were in, in uh, Kansas City. And so we were deeply rooted in that area. Uh, we had a, a daughter and her family who still are there. And uh, yet two of her daughters are here this morning. Uh, living now in the Oklahoma City area. One daughter left there at home, and they're still there. They may show up here someday. Who knows? But what we, what we came to realize was that it was time for us to make a change. Uh, I turned 80. Susan turned 79. I know I don't look 80, but I, I did. And uh, we began to think about the future. John will be uh, the executor of our affairs. I want to get very close to him <laughs> and be on his good side for some of the decisions he may have to make at some point. So, but we really felt that uh, getting close to John and the family and getting close to this local church would be meaningful to us. And so we've we prepared and we planned and we prayed and after all, uh, We'd been married for 58 years, 32 years in that place, 22 years in one house. We had launched our three children into their own families and careers, and so uh, 
We had a lot of the residue left, and the attic was jammed to the gills. We knew that uh, downsizing was to be a major part of this move, and so we began to think about it and talk about it. But where do you start? Anybody else here marry long? How does it accumulate that fast? How do you accumulate that much? The attic was stuffed with memories, collectibles, gifts received from around the world in our travels, uh, things that we thought the kids would take with them and they didn't, <laughs> and junk, lots of junk. We knew that downsizing was going to be hard, so we considered garage sales or estate sales. We considered all kinds of methods of donations and trash cans. But again, where do you begin? We finally decided uh, on, a, on a liquidator. Ever heard of a liquidator? I had not. It's a rather ominous sound for you to be working with someone whose professional title is liquidator. I didn't want to get very close to the guy at first. <laughs> I'd never heard of him, but once we had conversations with several other people about what we were about to do, it just seemed the right direction for us because there was so much involved in what we were going to be trying to do. I, I saw a sign here in, in Oklahoma City just a few weeks ago in the front yard of a house that obviously is going to be completely renovated and all this kind of stuff. But the sign caught my eye. The sign said, we sell dead people's stuff. <laughs> uh, that's the idea of a liquidator. <laughs> uh, to, to finish things up, to wrap it up, in order to be a good liquidator, you have to have a strong sense of self. You need to know who you are, and you need to know what you intend to do and how you're going to do it. If you're going to stay in business, you've got to make people glad to see you in spite of what you're having to do. And so we, uh, we got to know our liquidator quite well. He spent a full day in our home before we finally signed the papers. He went through every room, every drawer, every box in the attic, in the overfilled garage, and he assured us that he was interested in really helping us make the move. He, he said he would be as fair to us as he knew how to be, because some things he would pay us for, but then he made this statement. He made it to us. He looked us square in the face, and he put it this way, you have a lot of junk. <laughs> now. One man's treasure is another man's junk, and we all know that. But one of the things that we discovered was we had a lot of junk. <laughs> we didn't realize how much stuff we had just sitting around in the way. We were putting it in layers in different places in the house. Anybody else want to testify? <laughs> it just happens, doesn't it? It just keeps going. It keeps growing. He, he explained to us that what we had was nice. He, he, he could see it. He, he could see that we loved our home. We loved the things that we'd experienced. We had mementos everywhere. And then he said, uh, now when people begin the process of downsizing, 
you have to learn how to place value on things. You're going to have to really determine what matters, what doesn't matter as much, and what doesn't matter at all. I didn't think we had any of that third category. <laughs> but the longer he talked and the more we worked together with him, the more I realized we had very little of the first category. We really had more than we needed. The hard part was making the decisions. So we, we spent a lot of time we uh, had months of conversation between the two of us. We had conversations with our kids and our grandkids. We had conversations with the institutions we've been involved with all our lives, Trevecca Nazarene University, Nazarene Theological Seminary, the, the Global Ministry Center of the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, I was able to unload a few things on them. <laughs> and and we, had, uh, we had a lot of things that we just wanted to be sure were stewarded appropriately. What I call stewardship, the liquidator called junk. He wanted me to be sure that there were some things that we cherished that really didn't matter. And he took his cell phone out of his pocket at one point and opened it up and showed us that there was on every cell phone, the iPhone, there was a camera. And he said, some things take up more room than they need. Take a picture of them and get rid of them. He just kept pushing the envelope. We finally made it. We, we got here December 17th. It took us a whole year to get ready for that move. But we finally made it. We got here, but not without some... Uh, some difficult personal soul-searching, and frankly, some agonizing choices. Even some of the good stuff that mattered, there would not be room for. So how, how do you deal with that? And so we talked. Frankly, at times we were on the verge of tears, and at other times we were in tears. Part of that happened in my office as I began to downsize the library. A larger than I needed library. Much, much larger than I needed library. Much, much larger. I kept thinking she would say amen, but she hasn't as yet. <laughs> but I began to remove from the shelf the people with whom I'd been in dialogue for 58 years. Those who had informed my thinking and shaped my understanding and had rearranged my theology at several different levels and layers in my life, at different times in my life. I, I'm, I'm a lot like uh, Reuben Welch. I believe fewer and fewer things, but the things I believe, I believe more and more. Our lives are continually in the process of evaluating and Reevaluating and giving the opportunity for us to think some things through deeply enough, deeply enough, that we're not simply living by habit and prejudice, but beginning to really try to live with the intentionality of knowing that there are some things that really do 
matter. And we came to those kinds of conversations several times where we finally acknowledged that everything we kept would eventually be left behind. The final leg of the journey, there is no luggage. The final step is alone and into the presence of the only one who matters. Getting ready for that is not just a last-minute thing. It has to be a lifelong thing. Now, what does all that have to do with Matthew 13, the passage we just heard read a few moments ago, which I had time to read all of Matthew 13, 10 parables in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Wonderful parables. Now, if you've read the Gospels very often, you've read through Matthew, you've read the parables. And if you're anything like me, you read the parables. They're the parables. They're always there. You, every time you go there, they're still there. And they're parables. And they're, they're fun to read. But at the same time, in many cases, when you get through reading a parable, you say, I've just read a parable. <laughs> and what do you do with a parable? It's not a not a fairy tale, it's not a fable, it's not a cute story. In fact, Jesus was fond of using parables because parables were fascinating in their impact. In fact, Jesus, Jesus said it several different ways at different times. If you have ears, you need to be listening. No parable is ever intended to be left where it is with no further attention. In, in our hurried, harried lifestyles, most of us have very little time to go back to what we've heard on Sunday or read in the morning devotionals. We are so busy doing our things that the, the capacity for reflecting and contemplating and meditating deeply enough that the time bombs of the Holy Spirit can go off are often lost on us. We're busy with all this stuff. And we spend a lot of time organizing the stuff we've got. And if you organize it, you know that you'll have to come back in about six months and organize it all over again because you'll have added so much more stuff to it. So what do we do with this, this whole 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew where these parables are? Well, first of all, let me just say, a parable is never intended to be left alone. You don't just read it. And, so, and mark it off, you've got your chart, you've read that chapter, that 13th chapter of Matthew in your New Testament reading, it's marked off. No, Jesus intended that when you read a parable, you'd go home and think about it. You'd mull over it. The Christian discipline of contemplation has been one of the things that has kept the church on track for 2,000 years. The necessity of thinking truth through, of getting down deeply enough into what is being said 
that somehow it does begin to work alive in us. I, I spoke a moment ago about the time bombs of the Holy Spirit. There are going to be times, if you will allow it to occur, that you will think about something that Jesus has said, one of the parables that begins to mull over in your mind and roll over until you finally get it in one of those aha moments, and suddenly nothing can ever be the same again. You suddenly get it. Now, lots of us never get it. We're too busy. We've got too many other agendas to follow. We, we have a hard enough time just staying on track with what the job and the home and the hobbies and everything else is calling for. It's difficult for us sometimes to really get our minds still enough that the Holy Spirit has access. Let me ask you this question. Do you dare to give the Holy Spirit access to your mind and your heart? That visceral part of you that really is the determining factor in where your life is headed. Does the Holy Spirit have the right to challenge you. If the Holy Spirit wanted to challenge you, are you listening? Have you built enough space in there, in your life, in your schedule, in the way that you live, in the way that you, you work, in the way that you handle the traffic on the way to work on a Monday morning? Are you willing to give God room enough in those places where the time bombs might go off and something begins to make sense and you begin to ask yourself, how didn't I see that before? You see, that the time bombs will occur in those moments when we begin to realize that the first objective of life for a believer is obeying Jesus. Oswald Chambers wrote, the golden rule for understanding spiritually is not intellect, but obedience. If a person wants scientific knowledge, intellectual curiosity is their guide. But if they want insight into what Jesus Christ teaches, they can only get it by obedience. If things are dark to me, then I may be sure there is something I will not do. Intellectual darkness comes through ignorance. Spiritual darkness comes because of something I do not intend to obey. That's a hard word. But it's a word that may help us grapple with what Jesus is doing in his use of the parables. Remember, Parables are fascinating. We sometimes read them so casually, though, that we fail to wade into the deep waters of thinking and mulling and meditating over the real meaning behind the parables. Jesus doesn't just kind of drop this pebble into the water and walk on. It is because of something else that has been going on and something else he has previously said. And so he leaves these 
pebbles along the way so that if we follow the pebbles, we'll find a path. But in order to find the pebbles, we've got to be willing to listen to what he is saying and beginning, uh, begin to really think it through. It's not always easy for us. And remember, the parables were never intended to keep secrets to people who aren't believers and followers. Sometimes we misunderstand what the writer of the gospel is saying when it sounds as if Jesus used parables to hide the truth from other people. No, Jesus never used a parable to hide anything. Jesus used the parable as a subtle way to open the minds of everybody there, the followers and the yet not yet followers. He wanted them all to be aware of the fact that something is going on here and you need to listen to it very carefully. That's why Jesus, uh, the Matthew would say, Jesus told the crowds and all these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. But why? What was the purpose of these parables? Was he trying to hide the truth? No. Matthew seems to be saying to the people who are listening to him, if only you would listen with your ears and your hearts. Let anyone with ears listen, he said. But the listening requires that we do some thinking. I have dozens of Bibles. Um, one of the things that we did in our downsizing was give away dozens of Bibles, maybe a maybe hundred Bibles. We just have gotten them as gifts and picked them up in various settings throughout all the years. So we had Bibles by the ton. My study Bibles, I, uh, I, I've got all of my working Bibles I've had since I started my ministry, and uh, I've had to replace the Bibles. Uh, they get a little tattered and torn. I'm an underliner and a writer. I've got sometimes three layers of writing in some passages. I've had to tape some of the pages back together because I've used them so often that they're brittle and coming apart. And after a time, I hate to give up a Bible that I've used for so long that I can intuit where it will open when I open the, the, the cover. But I finally reached the place where I have to say, I've got to replace this Bible. And so I, I replace it. But in every Bible I have, all my working Bibles, all of my working Bibles, I've written three words in a flyleaf. Think, Christian. Think. You get the idea sometimes that what we believe is that God just sort of snatches us up by grace and throws us to the side and said, he's done, let's go to the next one. No, God intends to engage us in relationship to shape us, to cultivate us, to move us, to reorient us, to cause us to get beyond where we are and where we may have become so comfortable, we don't think there's any more gain, uh, ground to be gained. Dear friend, if you're not in heaven, you have ground to gain. All of us do. 
And part of what Jesus is trying to teach them in the parables is that this journey is not finished. But he was also trying to say without any hesitation, this kingdom of God has begun. Oh, it's not consummated yet. It is the already not yet kingdom, but the kingdom of God has come. When Jesus showed up, the kingdom showed up. When he was raised from the dead, it was all underway, and he was trying to show us, is still trying to show us through the Word and through the Spirit, the kingdom of God is not hidden away somewhere. We see it, and Jesus used the parable, remember, the the parable of the leaven. It seems to be hidden away somewhere. You mix it up with the, the flour, the three measures of flour. Do you realize how much bread she was making? She could feed 100 to 150 people with the bread. And the leaven was just sort of dropped into it and worked into it and left to do its business. And if we miss the point there, we misunderstand what Jesus is saying. You think the kingdom of God is someday to come. Let me tell you the kingdom of God has come. It's here. It's underway. We sang about that this morning. We heard passages of Scripture about that this morning. God's kingdom is not waiting to come. The kingdom is here. And I can tell you, folks, I've seen some places around the world the last few years that have stunned me with the realization that the kingdom is so manifest that it takes your breath. I went to one part of Africa where in one year, one district planted 1,500 churches. How's that for church growth? Whole villages were coming to Christ. And I stood there stunned by what I was hearing and heard almost audibly, not quite, but almost audibly, enough that I'd be willing to say the Spirit spoke to me to say, and you thought the kingdom might not yet be here. No, the kingdom has come. Do you realize that your pastor today is in Zambia, Africa? For goodness sake, we got some pictures this morning. What have you been doing? What were you thinking? Do you realize you're changing lives on the other side of the globe? Do you understand the extent to which this is the manifestation of the kingdom of God that has come. This, said Jesus in the parable, is the pearl of great price. This is where you have to re-evaluate everything. Once you see this, you realize this coming to church on Sunday morning is more than just being able to wave at my friends again. I walk into this room into a state of danger because the kingdom of God is at work, and if you're not careful, it'll get you. The kingdom of God is here in your life, in my life, working in ways sometimes we see and sometimes we don't see until we look back years later and with a moment of astonishment we say, why, God was here all along. 
You see, this is the time we have to come to realize that the kingdom of God, coming into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean that your problems are over. I used to say to young people as a young pastor, follow the will of God, it's the safest place in the world you can be. I quit saying that because I had come to experience in my own life and in the observation I made in the lives of other great saints of God, follow the will of God. It's the most dangerous thing you will ever do. It will take you to places you never dreamed you'd go. It will take you to places you prayed you'd never have to go. Because the kingdom of God is living and active and working in our downsizing, for our move to Oklahoma, many things that we thought were valuable were consigned to the landfill. I'll never forget the day that we loaded one of the bins, and I knew where the bin was going. And I looked in that bin, and I thought, I need to get this or that out of there. I saw things in there that I had cherished. I, thought, I saw things in there that I thought my kids wanted. My, my dad died, and my uh, brother and I had the responsibility of going through their things. Uh, they were of that greatest generation. Mother lived to 99, dad lived to 93. I don't think they ever threw anything away. <laughs> and it was all in that little house. And, and, and Susan and I both decided that we were not going to do to our kids what our mother and dad did to Ben and me. They couldn't make the decisions. And Ben and I had to. You're welcome, Kelly. <laughs> Part of what has to happen in our life journey is that we must reevaluate what really matters. And what Jesus was trying to say over and over and over again is that this journey, this journey, this kingdom journey will not always be easy. In fact, Susan and I have gone through some, some periods of grief and loss, some agonizing losses, some of the most heartbreaking experiences. We, some things we don't even like to talk about to one another, much less to anybody else. They were so agonizingly painful. But here's what we discovered. Sometimes the hidden leaven of the kingdom was so hidden that we never saw it until we took the loaf out of the heat of the oven. And we realized God had been there all along walking with us, walking through it, 
being at our side, even when we couldn't hear him, even when we didn't know he was there. One of the passages available for me this week is a passage that we all love to read and to quote. I, I want to use it as I close this morning because I think if we could just put the ends together right here, we'd realize what Jesus was trying to say through the parables. There is something bigger here than you know. There's something more important going on than you have any idea. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here. And so what I want you to know is that is still the message. It was the message of Jesus. It was the message of the apostles. It was the message of the early church. And the early church was saying it in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances you could ever imagine. But what they were hearing from the pen of the apostle Paul, especially now in this passage in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, was this magnificent story. I want you to listen to the words. This church struggled to find its way through tension, opposition, persecution, deep division within the church, Gentiles and Jews trying to learn how to be the church of Jesus Christ in the middle of the Roman Empire at the capital city. It couldn't get much worse than that. No, today is just child's play for us in the U.S. compared to what they were going through. And Paul would write to them, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, this is what Jesus was trying to say in Matthew 13. The kingdom of of the kingdom of God is here. It's at work. What appeared to be of little value, of no real consequence in the world around them, was the central reality of the human race. The kingdom of God is here. It will never end. It has not reached final fulfillment, but it is marching on. It's powerfully underway. The kingdom of God is here, now, everywhere, working where we may not yet see it, but working where it is transforming people and communities. The kingdom of God has begun, and the king is in residence with us here by the Spirit of God in this very place, and you and I have the opportunity to get in on it and know that it is work. It is the pearl of great price. Nothing else is as valuable as the kingdom of God. Are you in? No, I mean, are you all in? Is this for you, in reality, the only reality that really matters? So I say reevaluate re everything, everything. This 
is the only thing that matters in the long run and in the short run, the kingdom of God. This morning as we prepare to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, let it sink in to you. Let it change you. If you feel a need to pray as the elements are prepared and as they're being served, these altars are open. This is a good place to pray. If you need a place to pray, come. And as we receive these elements today, will you let the kingdom burrow deeply into your soul? Oh God, may we never overlook the value of the Eucharist. When we hold a morsel of bread in our hand and dip it into a chalice of wine and suddenly are reminded again, God is here. God's steadfast love endures forever. And we are invited to receive his transforming grace and take our place in the everlasting kingdom of God. In the strong and matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.